Uh, hello and good afternoon. My name is Stephanie Hoffner, and as you now know, I'm a recent graduate of the PPCM program here at the museum. And I'm here today to talk to you about uh, Louis M. Convax and the Kodak die transfer process. Um, this was the subject of my master's essay, in addition to being a topic that I've been interested in for about three years now. And one of the first questions people ask me um, when I mention Louis Kondax is, how did I become interested in this topic? Um, to answer that question, I have to give a great deal of credit and thanks to Jim Riley of the Image Permanence Institute. While I was working on an internship there, which began in the summer of 2014, Jim happened upon a listing for an estate sale of Philip Kondax, who is Louis' son and also uh, former, the former curator of the technology collection here at the museum. Uh, Philip passed away in April of 2014 and, as it turns out, was in possession of a great deal of his father's work, including visual materials pertaining to dye transfer and essentially the entirety of um, his written research on dye transfer. Uh, Jim Riley had the inclination to acquire these materials, which came to IPI in the form of boxes upon boxes of negatives, matrices, <coughs> and prints, and one box of paperwork. Jim was particularly excited about the box of paperwork, um, and at the time, I knew next to nothing about color photography, so he explained the um, information as being about this guy named Louis Condax, who, while working at Kodak, invented a color photographic process called dye transfer. I was vaguely familiar with dye transfer, uh, knowing only that its prints were very colorful and lasted a long time. During the following months, I would become very familiar with the process as my supervisor, Alice Carver-Cubic, and I painstakingly organized the boxes upon boxes of visual materials. Through Alice's methodology of organizing this material, I came to understand that dye transfer was a process of components. And I think this is a good segue to explain the basic idea of what the process entails. So I won't go into great depth about color theory as it pertains to photography because, in short, it's complicated. But I will say there are a few universal truths about color printing that pertain to all color photographic processes. The thing about dye transfer is that these truths exhibit themselves manually as compared to their somewhat automatic manifestations in other color processes, such as chromogenic or silver dye bleach. And this is where the notion of a process of components comes into play. First of all, color as we perceive it or photograph it as light emitted from a source needs to be broken into three channels. These are the additive primary colors, red, green, and blue. To take these colors from something that emits light to something that reflects light, like a print, we need to employ their reciprocals, which are the subtractive primary colors, cyan, magenta, and yellow. So in dye transfer printing, you get to see this all play out. One would typically start with a positive slide image, and from that slide, which is transmitting light, you would separate out your additive primaries by exposing your slide onto negative film through a red filter, then a green filter, and then again through a blue filter. These are appropriately called color records, and you use them to create the things from which your print will be made. And these are called the matrices, and they are the vessels <coughs> that transport your subtractive colors to your print. Matrices can also be loosely described as printing plates. From the color record, you print a cyan matrix. From the green record, you print a magenta matrix. And from the blue record, you print your yellow matrix. And there you have your subtractive primary colors. Now, the matrices are like printing plates in that they are coated in gelatin, which absorbs dyes when placed against a gelatin-coated paper, 
the dyes transferred to the dyes transferred to the paper, hence the name dye transfer. And the broad scope process under which dye transfer falls is called dye imbibition due to gelatin's propensity to absorb or imbibe dyes. So the components of dye imbibition processes all need to work and they all need to work well for the process to be successful. Historically speaking, certain of these components <coughs> were problematic for various reasons. Uh, by the time Kondax began his career at Kodak, slides and negatives were not problematic, but pretty much every other component was. These included the matrix film, the matrix film developer, the dies to a certain extent, the printing paper, and the general method of registering the matrices while printing. And this is where Kondax came in with the, tax, the task of improving these components. I think about this topic in this format because I structured my research and my essay to follow Kondax's lead. The bulk of my source material was that box of papers I mentioned previously, the ones now at IPI. These are Kondax's monthly research reports dated 1943 to 1960 from Kodak Research Laboratory. I initially came to appreciate these reports because I was curious about some of the prints that we found among the visual material. My curiosity stemmed from superficial reasons. I thought these were really pretty. <clears throat> uh, the color palette, which is obviously unusual, immediately reminded Jim of Capstaff Kodachromes, <clears throat> which was a two-color process using a brick orange and a blue-green dye to create the illusion of full color. At the time, I didn't know anything about that process, so I did some research and wanted to know more about these prints as well. So after failing to find anything about two-color dye transfer printing in photo history books, or even on Google, I decided to look through Kondax's notes. And there it was, reports on diacroic dye transfer printing, which was an experimental process he was working on in 1950. So it was in this way that I recognized that there was a gap in the history of photography, not just about dichroic printing, but about Kondax in general. In one text, Peter Krauss refers to Kondax as the father of the dye transfer process, but there isn't much written in any text about how and why he earned that legacy. And that is for, uh, that's for reasons that I will discuss later. But in the meantime, the research question I eventually settled on for my essay were basically how and why. But before I go into that, I feel it necessary to discuss Kondax as a person, which until very recently I knew little about. While I was researching and writing last summer, I was able to structure a decent biography. Um, Kondax was born in 1897 in Albania. I have yet to discover any information about his early life, including anything about his education, which to the best of my knowledge was informal. I do know that he arrived in the United States with his family in 1912, and they settled in Philadelphia. <laughs> it was in 1916 that Kondax saw, in his words, portraits in natural color on paper, when he happened to be passing by Elias Goldinsky's studio, which was located in Philadelphia. He went inside to inquire how the prints were made and was directed to the nearby Hess Ives Corporation. What he had seen were examples of hychrography, or hychro prints, which was a dye imbibition type process invented by Frederick Eugene Ives, who was a prolific contributor to photography, particularly in the realms of color photographic and graphic, graphics arts printing. So as one does, Kondax immediately applied for a job at Hess Ives that same day and returned the next day to meet with Ives personally 
bringing with him his collection of autochromes from Europe in hopes of impressing Ives. It seemingly worked, and Ives hired Condax to work as a part-time junior laboratory assistant. There aren't too many details available regarding Condax's time with Ives. I do know that Ives educated him and trusted him with dye and babition research, and that Condax's proficiency in the laboratory can be traced back to Ives. I also know that his career did not begin well because he nearly asphyxiated himself in a darkroom. On his first day, he was instructed to hang some old films out, uh, essentially allowing them to air out, but he, what he didn't understand, because his English was so poor, was that he was instructed to leave the poorly ventilated darkroom every five minutes in order to breathe. Because he was eager to work, he stayed in the darkroom a little too long and passed out. After he was revived, Ives told him that he needed to learn the language better before he could be trusted with any more work. So he did just that and returned to Ives a few months later. Um, and at that time, Ives was unfortunately in the process of closing his firm because Hycro printing was proving to be a commercial failure. So Ives advised Condax go work for Goldensky, who was one of the few photographers to be printing in color at the time. Ultimately, Condax ended up working for Goldensky for about three years where he learned the photographic trade. Uh, but in one way or another, Ives maintained an influence on Condax, who in the 1920s began his own experiments with dye imbibition printing, including these two examples from the collection here at the museum. In 1934, he founded Tricolor Print Service in Philadelphia, and soon after formed an informal partnership with a young business school graduate named Robert Speck. Speck's initial involvement in the company was to handle its business aspects, but as their workload expanded, Condax taught Speck how to handle, uh, how to work in the laboratory. And in 1937, they both relocated to New York City to take advantage of the booming advertising industry there. Speck, Speck soon after signed on as full partner and the company was renamed Condax Speck Incorporated. At the suggestion of Dr. Herbert Ives, Frederick Ives' son, Condax and Speck sought funding from inventor and businessman Sherman Fairchild, who ended up providing them financial support for their research and development of dye imbibition printing processes. The end result of this research was the Condax dye troll system released in 1941. This process was argue, arguably superior to anything else currently available on the market. It was based in part on Kodak's wash-off relief process, which had been released in 1935. But despite the success of Condax's process, his business, his business began to slow in 1942 due to the United States' involvement in World War II. It was at that point that Condax suggested, or that um, Fairchild suggested Condax and Speck sell their company to Eastman Kodak and arranged for Kenneth Mies, the then Vice President of Research and Development at Kodak, to visit Condax's lab in New York. Needless to say, Mies must have been impressed because not only did he acquire Condax's company, he also uh, requested Condax come to Kodak to work in the research laboratory. From what I understand, Condax had one stipulation, and that was that Robert Speck be included in the deal which he was, so in 1943, both men relocated to Rochester. As early as November of that year, Condax demonstrated a preliminary version of the dye transfer process at Kodak Auditorium to a very enthusiastic audience. 
What I didn't know about Condax until a few weeks ago when I spoke with Martin Scott, who knew him personally, was anything about his general character. What I could guess based on his research notes and what I knew about his activity, activities outside of dye transfer was that he was a talented and driven individual with a strong appreciation for both art and science. In his spare time, he built violins and violas studied, and studied varnish-making practices of the old masters. He knew world-famous musicians and kept what could best be described as a musical household. I also know that he went to the same cafe every morning and ordered tea into which he'd add a Vicks cough drop, which he claimed was his secret to never getting sick in the winter. And as for his general demeanor, Martin described him as gregarious and someone who made friends easily. So one final thing before I move on. At one point among the prints Condax had displayed outside of his laboratory at Kodak was a picture of a white rabbit that he deliberately printed out of register. That is, the colors were printed out of alignment. One day when Kenneth Meese noticed this, he asked Condax what it was, to which Condax replied, well, that's just a hair out of register. <laughs> So as I mentioned before, the Condax dye troll process was based off something called wash-off relief, which was Kodak's commercial dye imbibition process and the end result of a long history of dye imbibition printing inventions. The first known mentions of dye imbibition printing was a patent obtained by Ernest Edwards in 1875 and, in, and independently another obtained by Charles Cross in 1880. Through the years, many other inventors pursued the process, attempting to perfect it because until the 1940s, dye imbibition was the pro most, most practical means of obtaining color prints on paper. For a comprehensive overview of the history of the technique, I would recommend Sylvie Penichon's book, 20th, 20th Century Color Photographs, Identification and Care. <clears throat> a few notable names are Edward Sanger Shepard, who was the first to commercialize dye imbibition printing by selling complete printing kits to the public in 1900. Another, of course, was Frederick Eugene Ives, who was working on his hyperprinting technique around 1915 and continued researching and developing dye imbibition printing materials throughout his life. He was also the first to note the effect of pH on the process and how by adjusting the acidity of dyes, one could adjust color balance in their print. Another inventor, or an inventor I found particularly interesting was um, Arthur Traube, who, because he worked methodically during the 1920s and 1930s to improve dye imbibition materials by studying and tweaking their physical, chemical, physical and chemical properties, much, li much like Condax would do later. He also offered the best summary of the importance of the process and foreshadowed Condax's contributions when he stated in 1931, I have examined closely the known methods for producing color pr prints on paper. The past, I'm sorry. I have examined closely the known methods for producing color paper prints during the past few years, and I have come to the conclusion that the imbi imbibition method is the simplest and least expensive. The fact that none of the available processes of this type are fully accepted is due to certain deficiencies and inconveniences. Nothing would stand in the way of their universal acceptance if these problems were to be remedied and eliminated. Traube, who was Jewish, working in Germany, was unable to continue his work due to the rise of Nazism and the impending onset of World War II. He was forced to sell his firm and leave the country. 
Kodak also recognized the market potential <clears throat> of dye imbibition printing and released wash-off relief to the public in 1935. It was to date the most successful iteration of the process, but was not without certain deficiencies and inconveniences. For one, the process was extremely tedious, requiring 15 steps, not including six additional optional steps, and it took four to five hours to produce a single print from scratch. This was uh, partially due to the fact that for an unknown reason, Kodak opted to use two-step development and hardening bleaching techniques to produce matrices. Conversely, Kodak had long been producing matrix film for the Technicolor process, wherein the matrices were developed in tanning developer, which developed and hardened matrix gelatin in one step. Another problem was that wash-off relief dyes were slow to transfer. The matrices required about 30 minutes in a dye bath and another 10 to 30 minutes to transfer the dyes from the matrix to the receiving paper. <clears throat> and finally, the method of registering the matrices onto the receiving paper was imprecise, as consumers were essentially instructed to eyeball it. What wash-off relief did offer <clears throat> was consistent results and otherwise clear instructions all packaged in a consumer-friendly product. It also served as a template for inventors such as Condax to work from and develop their own products, which is ultimately how and why Condax wound up at Kodak, first to improve wash-off relief and then to create an entirely new product altogether. So, as I mentioned, Condax focused on perfecting all components of the process, including the matrix film, tanning developer, dyes, mordanted paper, and registration techniques. Creating dye transfer was essentially like conducting an experiment with several variables. So, when one variable was changed, most of the others needed to be altered to compensate and ensure everything worked well together. Having nearly 30 years of experiment experience with dye imbibition materials, and a drive for perfection, Condex was well suited for his task. So I'll start with matrix film, which as I mentioned, works kind of like a printing plate. Matrix, uh, matrix film was coated in a gelatin containing light sensitive silver halides. When this film was exposed to light through a color record, a color record negative, then developed uh, the gelatin hardened in proportion to the amount of light it received during exposure, and when the unexposed portions were washed away, what you were left with was essentially a gelatin relief image on the film. And this relief image was capable of absorbing dyes in proportion to the thickness of the gelatin on the surface of the film. And this allowed for tonal gradations, such as we see in photographic images. By 1945, Condax had established clear goals to create a film that was durable enough to be used to create hundreds of prints from the same set of matrices. He also wanted the film to exhibit very little highlight staining, uh, to be able to render fine detail, and also to transfer dyes quickly. As far as staining and image detail were concerned, the film's emulsion was the problem. Initially, Condax focused on the size of the film grain, but reducing the grain size caused more problems than solutions. So in 1950, Condax determined that the thickness of the film's gelatin could be safely reduced by 40%. As a function of development, this reduction in emulsion thickness was able to yield greater detail in the final image, particularly in the image highlights. Now, a thinner, gelatin, or a thinner emulsion uh, meant that the surface gelatin was more prone to abrasion, 
which isn't ideal for a matrix film intended to create hundreds of prints. So in 1954, Condax decided to add a stabilizer, DOH, to the emulsion, and the stabilizer acted as an antioxidant, which in this case meant it basically reinforced the gelatin and made it more durable. It also had the added benefit of increasing the matrix film's shelf life, such that films could be used for up to a year past their re recommended expiration date. The matrix film dye staining problem was largely a result of the film's subbing layer, which is the layer that ensures the, emulsi the emulsion sticks to the film's support. In 1944, Condax noted that the subbing layer was indeed subject to a high degree of staining, making it difficult for consumers to visually balance their dyes while printing. Condax rectified this problem in two parts. First, by purifying the gelatin used in the subbing layer, making it less reactive with the dyes, and then adding a stain eliminator to the first step of matrix processing, which was a rinse in an acid bath. The stain eliminator was actually just Calgon, which was a popular commercial water softener, but was marketed in the dye transfer process as of 1947 as Kodak's Matrix Highlight Reducer. <laughs> as for the Matrix film support, Condex arrived at Kodak during the company's transition from cellulose nitrate films to cellulose acetate films. <clears throat> this was a problem for Matrix film because as Condex noted of nitrate, it is superior in every respect, except in its keeping quality and, of course, its explosive character. So because nitrate was highly flammable, Condax had no choice but to make acetate work. And he struggled with this mainly because acetate tended to warp during processing and that affected image, regist that affected image registration. <clears throat> he settled on an acceptable acetate support in 1949 after testing over 200 material samples. But ultimately, the film support issue became moot in 1960 when Kodak introduced their S-Star film base, which was a polyester support that Kondak deemed an excellent support for matrices in every respect. <clears throat> One of the things Kondak is frequently noted for in historical texts is his employment of tanning developer for the dye transfer matrix film. As I noted, wash-off relief matrices were developed in a two-step process which entailed development of exposed silver in, the standard, in, in a standard photographic developer, uh, METAL, and then hardening in a bleach, um, ammonium dichromate, which hardened the gelatin in the regions containing developed silver. As a carryover from the Condax Dietrol system, Condax decided to use a tanning developer containing pyrogalol capable of developing and hardening the exposed matrices in one step. Aside from the benefit of saved time, tanning development created a more durable gelatin relief and allowed dyes to transfer faster and more completely from matrix to receiving paper than, than did the two-step process. <clears throat> In the beginning, Condax did encounter some problems with tanning development, namely the fact that it was partially responsible for the subbing layer staining issue. Uh, because it adversely reacted with the subbing layer gelatin, causing it to absorb dyes. Refining the gelatin helped a bit, but Condax also needed to alter the formula of his tanning developer to further mitigate the dye staining problem and improve, and improve its functionality as a developer. His first pyro formula failed to evenly process the image's shadows and highlights. 
Essentially, the developer was not penetrating the gelatin deeply enough to adequately develop and harden the highlights, resulting in a loss of image detail in the highlights. To fix this, Condax added metal to the formula in a one-to-one -one ratio with the pyro, and later, in 1946, increased the pyro-metal ratio to one-to-two. Metal had a high developing action, whereas pyro had a high tanning action, and the combination of the two in the, a proper ratio ensured that the shadows and highlights were both receiving sufficient, sufficient development and hardening. <clears throat> Condax further improved the developer formula in 1955 by adding a small amount of sodium thiosulfate, or fixer, which drove to the developer far down into the depths of the emulsion where it could really work on the image highlights. The end result was a matrix film with a great characteristic curves, great characteristic curve, and uh, what this means, for those of you who don't know, is basically that the image tones looked really good from highlight to shadow and everything in between. <clears throat> so as I was drafting my paper, I was dreading the topic of dyes because I assumed it would be a huge undertaking. In actuality, the formula of dye transfer dyes changed very little during Condax's career. And that's not to say that Condax didn't test hundreds of different dyes in the labs, because at times it seems like that's all he did. I was surprised to learn that it wasn't his responsibility to synth synthesize dyes, but rather he served more as, more as judge and jury of the dyes created by other scientists and dyes purchased through outside vendors. Information is not available about how dye transfer dyes or even Condax dye-tool dyes came to transfer so much more quickly than did wash-off relief dyes. I know that it was partially due to the matrix film and development, um, partially due to the matrix film and development materials, but the very early history, that is 1943, of dye transfer dyes is absent <coughs> from the research notes. The first real mention of dyes came in 1944 when Condax and his superiors made the, the, the decision to distribute dyes as liquid concentrates rather, as, rather than as powders. Condax tested powder dyes, and powdered dyes were frequently used around the labs to produce prints, but they proved to be too difficult to mix and package for consumer use. So this left Condax with the task of locating a suitable solvent for dyes and battle the fact that the liquid concentrates were subject to mold growth over time. Uh, the mold problem was quickly and easily fixed in 1945 when Condax added moldex a commercial fungicide to the liquid concentrates he tested. As for solvents, Condax was a proponent of ethylene glycol, but his superiors rejected his first set of glycol dyes because the dyes were causing cumulative staining if the matrices were not thoroughly rinsed with Calgon after each use. After testing several different solvents, Condax and his team settled on an ethylene glycol urea combination in 1947, which when combined with moldex, yielded dye concentrates that could be kept in storage for over a year without accumulating mold or having the dyes precipitate out of solution. The solvent formula used when dye transfer was first released in 1946 is not available in Kodak literature, uh, nor is it definitively known that the glycol urea solvent was the choice after 1947, but I do know that Condax didn't mention solvent testing at all beyond this point. As for the dyes themselves, they didn't change much over the years, at least those dyes that 
uh, Kodak included in their consumer dye transfer kits. Condax referred to these as the standard dyes. And I imagine the reason that the dyes didn't change much was because the process of locating suitable dyes for a set of dye, uh, transfer dyes was grueling. Uh, Condax's stipulations for dyes was that they needed to be stable in light and in heat, have superior color purity, transfer quickly, not stain the matrices, and for purposes of color balancing, uh, that they be appropriately sensitive to alkalis and acids. The trouble rested in the fact that dye transfer printing calls for three separate dyes, cyan, magenta, and yellow, and that all three dyes needed to possess sim similar qualities, uh, such as sensitivity to pH, characteristic curve, shelf life, and reactivity to the matrices, and they all needed to work well together in order to be used for printing. <coughs> So as of about 1944, the standard dyes were Irio Fast Cyanine S, Bright Alizarine Light Red B, and Xylene Light Yellow R. The cyan dye, despite its tendency to migrate below the, paper, the printing paper's receiving layer, a problem Condax would eventually rectify, remained Kodak's standard cyan throughout Condax's career due to its ability to transfer uh, quickly and color balance easily with the other dyes. The yellow dye was prone to light fading, but again remained in use for over a decade because it was easy to color balance. The magenta dye persistently caused a pink stain on dye transfer prints, which prompted Condax to advocate for a new magenta called Bright Alizarine Light Red 4B in 1945, but Kodak opted to simply synthesize their own slightly improved version of the original magenta, which became the standard in 1946. By October of 1948, it became apparent to Kodak that the standard dyes were a problem. At that time, Condax had approached man management to discuss the possibility of releasing a series of magazine articles promoting dye transfer, to which the answer was basically no, we're receiving too many consumer complaints about the dyes, and further publicity is just going to increase the amount of complaints. So in 1950, Condax and his team increased their focus on finding better standard dyes. It wasn't until September of 1954 that the researchers located a suitable yellow called Fast Light Yellow 3GXCF. It was much more brilliant and light stable than the previous yellow, and once purified by Kodak research scientists, Condax deemed it perfect to use as the standard yellow. In June of 1955, Kodak finally came around to accepting Condax's recommendation to use the light red 4B as standard magenta. And as I mentioned, the fast cyanine S remained the standard cyan because its attributes outweighed its drawbacks. And Condax was hard at work seeking alternative solutions to those drawbacks. So Kodak distributed its new dye kits to the public in September of 1956, and soon thereafter began re receiving positive feedback because the prints made from the new set of dyes exhibited noticeably improved color saturation, color purity, and image sharpness when compared to the old materials. <clears throat> and now for what I consider to be Condax's greatest contribution to dye transfer, and that was his mordanted paper. The paper used in dye imbibition printing was coated with a layer of gelatin into which dyes would transfer from the matrices. To facilitate this process, a substance called a dye mordant was added to the gelatin receiving layer. 
A dimordant is a metal ion that forms dye complexes that affix the dyes to the print surface. Wash-off relief papers did not come pre-mordanted and required printers to prepare the paper themselves by bathing it in a bath of Kodak mordanting solution prior to printing. Upon Kondax's arrival, Kodak began selling pre-mordanted paper, a product Kondax had offered through his own Kondax dye system. The mordant Kodak used was a thorium salt because thorium worked well with the acidic dyes used in dye transfer printing. However, it did have a tendency to poison the matrix film, whereas the thorium migrated into the relief image and mordanted dyes to the gelatin relief. In 1945, Condex resolved this issue by treating the paper with dilute ammonium hydroxide prior to printing. However, his ultimate goal was to improve the mordant itself, especially because, among other issues, thorium alone did not hold the standard cyan dye to the paper's surface. <coughs> From 1946 to 1948, Condax exper experimented with means of reinforcing the thorium mordant by adding various coatings to the image receiving layer. Through these experiments, Condax developed an entirely new method of preparing mordanted paper in 1948. It wasn't until 1954 that he fine-tuned the chemistry, but what his technique boiled down to was a simple acid-base reaction. I'll spare you the details of all the compounds he experimented with from 1946 to 1954 and describe the process via the end result. First, a layer of thorium salt, which is an acidic mordant salt, was applied to the gelatin receiving layer. This was allowed to dry and then a top coat of sodium aluminate, which was a basic mordant salt, was applied as an overcoat. The base and the acid reacted with one another on the paper's surface and at the, top most, and at the topmost portion of the image receiving layer, a double mordant called thorium aluminate formed. Because this mordant was very strong and strategically located, it prevented the dyes, particularly the problematic cyan dye, from migrating downward and laterally. The resulting images were sharper and more permanent than those printed on previous iterations of dye transfer paper. At the direction of the sales department, the new dye transfer paper wasn't released until 1956, which was when the new set of dyes were ready for distribution. As with the new dyes, this new and improved paper also received positive reviews from the public. <coughs> and now I'll speak briefly about matrix registration. As I mentioned, the method of registering matrices in the wash-off relief process was imprecise. One of the key elements Condax brought with him to Kodak from the Condax Dietrol system was a fairly simple means of registration. He developed this around 1941, and it consisted of a special board with two adjustable pegs over which hole-punch matrix film could be placed in proper position one after another. This way, each dyed image could transfer in the same place on the paper, overlaying evenly to create a three-color print. Kodak didn't immediately adopt this method, opting first to use the dye transfer blanket, which was basically a sheet of transparent plastic affixed to a bar. The plastic sheet had flat disks under which the edges of the matrix film were secured, then lowered into contact with the receiving paper. It wasn't until 1951 that Kodak included instructions <coughs> for Kondax's hole punch method in their dye transfer booklets. For this technique, printers align their matrices over a light box, preferably with the aid of magnification, 
Then they taped all three matrices down together and punched two register holes along the tops of the films. These holes were then used to secure each matrix onto the Kodak transfer register board, which was outfitted with two register pegs. It sounds complex, but it was basically as simple as putting hole punch papers into a three ring binder in such a way that they line up evenly. Um, and it vastly improved the registration in the final print, which contributed to the markability of the die transfer process. <clears throat> so why was any of this important? I'll first speak to the applications of dye transfer, which, as it turned out, were more geared towards professionals than to the average consumer. Although dye imbibition processes were the most viable means of creating color prints on paper during the early 20th century, by the time Condax began working on dye transfer, chromogenic printing had emerged on the consumer market and would ultimately become the process of choice for amateur photographers. Compared to dye transfer, Chromogenic printing, and to a certain degree, silver dye bleach, was far more consumer friendly in terms of cost and ease. So in March of 1957, six months after the release of Condax's new and improved dye transfer kits, Kodak reassigned him to chromogenic and dye transfer bleach, or <coughs> silver dye bleach research. But dye transfer was most, uh, remained in use. In fact, Kodak didn't discontinue dye transfer materials until 1989-1990. Its longevity was due to the fact that it appealed to those who could best be described as photographic craftsmen. Because the process involved, as uh, Bob Shanebrook uh, describes it, so many moving parts, photographers were granted a great deal con of control over the appearance of their final prints. And this ranged from the creation of color records to the ability to adjust pH levels of the dye baths. And every step in between was wildly customizable, such that dye transfer was well-suited for professional photographers in the realms of fine art, and to a much greater extent, advertising. In fact, the longevity of dye transfer material production can be attributed to its use by the advertising industry. Dye transfer was, in essence, the chemical version of Photoshop in terms of pre-press work. And that's not to say that the process wasn't highly influential in the realm of fine art. In fact, dye transfer was in part responsible for the emergence of color photography as an art form, particularly during the 1970s. However, due to the process's commercial application, however, the process's commercial application was Kodak's financial incentive to produce dye transfer materials. And with the onset of electronic image manipulation, such as Photoshop, the, de the demand for dye transfer began to wane, and ultimately the product was discontinued. So the applications of dye transfer were undoubtedly culturally significant in terms of image dissemination. For me, starting out, the true intrigue of this topic was <clears throat> the process of becoming privy to the technical details presented in Condax's notes. And it's only recently that I've come to appreciate the significance of this matter, and this relates to the notion of lost history. The fact that I even had access to these notes is nothing short of remarkable, and this is due to Kodak's record retention policies. In short, a very large portion of photographic history has essentially been purged due, con due to concerns over litigation and trade secrets. And this is why I find this to be a topic worth pursuing. 
Kondax's work on dye transfer is one of the few facets of an otherwise lost history that we now have the privilege of understanding. I now realize that this is about the history of innovation and that we're still filling in the blanks to that history. To that effect, I have been extremely fortunate to learn, <coughs> to learn about and to continue to learn about the inner workings of Kondax's innovations and to be able to share them with you here today. <laughs> 